you're about to listen to another great show on the Four Eyed Radio Network. To listen to other shows just like this, go to foureyedradio.com. Like our show, Victory Road, a Pokemon podcast. Where we talk everything and anything about Pokemon. Learn something new. Like, did you know that every Pokemon card is misprinted on the back? The ball centerpiece opens on the wrong side. <laughs> what? I'm going to have to check that out. But yeah, you can learn stuff like that, which I just learned right now. What the hell? Someone like dragging furniture? Oh god, or body. What is making that much noise? Wow, that's really loud. Are they like opening a portal to hell up there? <laughs> like some of these noises I just don't understand. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. We're going to power through. It doesn't, I mean, sometimes I can hear it, but I, I imagine people don't notice it. Whatever. Wallop and web snappers. My spider sense is tingling. 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 Anybody else's spider sense tingling? Welcome to Walloping Web Snappers, a Spider-Man podcast where we dive into every Spider-Man cartoon ever made. I'm Doug. And I'm Derek. And is your spider sense tingling? Affirmative, and it is saying that this unit has value. <laughs> to listen to this show, find us on foureyedradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Revenge Lover Designs, illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit revengelover.com. I'm so jealous that you got to do the response for this episode because that's pretty much what I would have done too. <laughs> Yeah, man. Robot stuff. Robot, Robot stuff. stuff. Robot stuff. Yeah, I really like this episode a lot. Yes. It's really good. I think it's my favorite one of the show so far. Oh, nice. Okay, well, we are the show that we're still talking about is Spider-Man Unlimited. And we get a robot story in this one. It's uh, kind of a classic robot story, but it's oh, yeah. in the context of Spider-Man Unlimited. So obviously it's going to be a little bit different yeah. uh, than usual. And, uh, yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. I like it. I like it a lot. It's, uh, you know, yeah, like you said, it's pretty derivative, I guess. It's really basic, but honestly, for me, I like any kind of, like, robot-achieving sentience and, like, learns the value of life and, <laughs> and people treat it like it's a real person. I love that stuff anyway, so it would have yeah. to seriously botch it for me to, like, not like it. And it doesn't. Yeah. I think it does it uh, pretty reasonably well, uh, or at least as well as could be done in this show. And is also one of those things that I don't think could have ever – I wouldn't have seen it working in any other Spider-Man show, I think. I think it really only makes sense in a show like this that's already playing on lots of pretty standard sci-fi tropes. Sure, sure. Well, the episode that we are talking about is Spider-Man Unlimited Season 1, Episode 5, entitled Steel Cold Heart. The synopsis for this one, as you probably already gleaned from our little tiny bit of discussion, is – as follows from IMDb. A machine man, X-51, meaning the 51st off the assembly line, one of the high evolutionary's operatives, refuses to hurt innocent people, so he betrays the evolutionary and decides to join the rebellion. 
Yep. <laughs> that's that's what happens. Pretty, pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. Yep. The original air date for this one was January 13th, 2001. Uh, the story by credit is to Will Minio and Roger Slifer. Slifer? Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, here's the thing. In the ongoing saga of us attempting to pronounce literally anyone's name and our most recent subject of Mr. Will Minio, uh, we discovered how to say that name properly. So naturally, we need a new name to pronounce uh, completely incorrectly for at least a couple weeks. And I guess it's Mr. Slifer slash Slifer. Slifer Slifer makes that sense. We're going to go with Roger Slifer. That name sounds better for you. If it's not how you pronounce it, it's how you should pronounce it now because it sounds better than Slifer. So Mm -hmm. Roger Slifer. Um, (laughs) He also wrote the teleplay. Slifer, uh, it's the first time we've encountered him. He's been a story editor on um, a couple of things we're familiar with. uh, Gem and, of course, Street Fighter, the animated series, which we have talked about on, I think, every episode of Spider-Man Unlimited at this point now. I think so and I expect that we will never break that. Nope, nope, nope. So that and a writer on, wait for it, RoboCop, the animated series. Not Alpha Commando. Not Alpha Commando. <laughs> it's always one or the other. So, yep. He's also written on G.I. Joe, Yu-Gi-Oh!, which is oh. an interesting credit. Like the like the, the first like the first season or first series dub of it. Has Yu-Gi-Oh! ever come up on the show? Um, I don't think Yu-Gi-Oh! ever really has an incredible. I think we've referenced like Japanese card games before, so yeah. it might have come up there. But as a credit, I don't hmm. think anybody's written. We don't really come across a lot of anime dub writers. Like that doesn't seem to cross over very much. Yeah, just voice actors. Yeah, yeah. It's really only huh. been like one or two other times I feel like that anime writers have 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 uh, have kind of come on our radar. So that's interesting. Yeah. And Yu-Gi-Oh specifically, like it's such a I don't know. I wouldn't have pegged that to be like the anime that you would pivot to. From, <laughs> from, well, no, I guess so. It's like a kids. It's like a kids entry anime. So, and that's, actually, it does kind of make sense. It's in the the sphere on this side of the planet, you know. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I could see that. It may, it would make more sense than like Death Note or something. <laughs> But right. <laughs> he is also a comics writer. And in fact, he probably I think he probably has more notoriety as a comics writer. Um, the biggest thing that I, I would say, based on everything that I'm, I know of him, that he's done is creating the or co-creating the character of Lobo. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I don't know a ton about Lobo, but what I do know has me interested to know more. Well, he's a cool, edgy guy. Yeah. You see, so. <laughs> With a cool, edgy look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we already mentioned the one major character that is introduced and spotlighted in this episode, and that is X-51. X-51 is portrayed by the same person who voices all the machine men, but we wouldn't have necessarily talked about him as the voice of the machine men because they are sort of foot soldiers in this show. But we'll talk about him now because he has a name in this show, X-51. So uh, he's portrayed by Dale Wilson. He is also, like many, 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 many people on this show, voiced properties all in the same pool of things. So I'm just going to list a bunch of the things we're already familiar with that he's provided (laughs) voices for. Like (laughs) Robocop, Alpha Commando, Cardcaptors, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century, Alienators, Evolution Continues, Stargate Infinity, X-Men Evolution, Dragon Ball Z, Street Fighter, the animated series, Action Man, and honestly, probably a butt-ton of other ones. But pertinent to this show and Spider-Man in general, he does voice all those machine men, but 
look out because we will mention him in a future episode for a different character that I'm not going to name yet because oh. it would be spoilers if you don't already know. I don't. I haven't. I didn't look ahead, so I don't even know which one you're talking about. So that'll be a <laughs> so surprise. So I know cool. a character that appears, and I will not ruin it for you. <laughs> okay. Interesting. All right. Yes. All right. Yes. Yes. Cool. 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 Yeah. So he's cool. I like him as X fifty one as yeah. well. I mean, I like him fine. I mean, he's, it's a generic robot voice, but yeah. like, I think he does a good enough job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, 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 I'll probably reference this a couple times, but because of what this episode is, I opted to go back and watch the Batman Beyond episode Zeta just oh. to see how both of these series handled a similar story. Yeah. Uh, cause, because there are so many comparisons Yep. I'm not going to bring it up to like adjudicate which is better or worse, but I was just curious. And I think I think X51 is allowed to have a bit more of a personality in the voice, and I think that Dale Wilson uh does well with the room that he's given given that he is a robot. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll give him that. It's okay. it's I feel like it's so hard to judge sometimes like robot characters that aren't like regular roles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can't take anything away from him, but I don't know if I would have, like, noted the performance otherwise. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I mean, that's the thing. That's that. That's the one knock against this episode. That's a weird criticism, but it's almost like it's such a basic robot story. It doesn't really veer any direction away that it, there's not really a lot of opportunities for much different to happen, like, acting-wise. So, you know... He's portraying a character that is kind of going through the motions and it's like if you ask for a robot voice where the robot's like just achieving sentience and just feeling feelings for the first time, <laughs> you kind of know what you're expecting because we've seen that yeah. like a bazillion times, which again, it's fine. It's a it's a common like trope and story type for a reason because I think it's all it's always it generally can be very affecting and it's pretty easy to make it really affecting. Yeah. What what this show does though that some others and what Batman Beyond also doesn't do is that you get to see that little bit or spark of growth and realization and and whatnot so like x51 at the beginning of this episode is not the same character that he is at the end of the episode yeah whereas zeta is introduced at a point in time where that revelation's already happened so there's no personality development over the course of that episode whereas in this one there's like a, a distinctly developing personality on screen so i think it's like a cool opportunity for dale wilson to figure out what that is and I think he does a good job with that. Yeah. But like I, robots, I, I would be curious. Robots are probably, I don't know. Are they like more constricting? I'm trying to think. I guess oh, probably yeah. not because Transformers um, exists. Those are all freaking robots. Well, <laughs> but they're different though, but they're right? Not, yeah, they're not contrasted against like an entire cast of humans, even if there are humans. But even then, like tr- something like Transformers and, and things like it, it's like, they're more aliens than they are robots. Like they're, and they're not they're, like learning their sentience. Yeah, there's a difference there. I mean, it's it's the whole it's the same deal where like when you look at like Arnold's performance in like the first two Terminators, and it's kind of hard to judge it because he wasn't a very good actor in the first movie because he was still new at it, but that made him perfect for the role because it made him yeah. very s- stiff. That makes sense. And then in the second one, it's sort of all uh, 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 very heavily about him sort of achieving 
like sentience and learning like what human life like the value of human mm-hmm. life and emotions and stuff and the performance is more interesting because he's grown as an actor by that point but he is still Arnold so like there's only <laughs> so much that he's able to do just because of like the persona that he is mm-hmm. but but it's still I mean I think personally I think it ends up being kind of perfect for that movie like the perfect kind of tonal mis- mix but it does make it sort of hard to I think like analyze the performance because it's like okay but like is this good acting or not like, I can't really <laughs> tell because you know when when someone is acting badly they're either over emoting or you say like oh, well they just seem like a robot because they're like monotone and like yeah. <laughs> literally being a robot it's kind of hard to figure out what that balance is i think it's i think it's probably challenging to play a robot and do it well i think it's challenging in the in-between zone which is where this falls right you have like the robots that are like just ai or they're just like a functional thing that is a robot or an aut- like an automaton or whatever and that i think is harder to judge sometimes cuz they're not meant to like be a personality or whatever mm-hmm. and then you have the the things like transformers or the robot character in buzz lightyear of star command which we we watched right for a commentary where those are just like fully realized personalities they're not like having any sort of existential crisis or trying to understand humanity but robots trying to understand humanity is like a whole char- like it's a whole category of characters where mm-hmm. you have maybe Arnold's character in in Terminator, or you have Data from Star Trek, or you have X-51 in this episode, and that's probably where the challenge lies because you're not just trying to retain sort of like a robotic monotone thing, and you're not necessarily super emotive. You're in this like weird in-between discovery zone. Yeah. Uh, And portraying that is probably what's tough because like I think you can very easily – evaluate Brett Spiner's portrayal of Data and be like, he's doing a a phenomenal job portraying Mm -hmm. that journey. But I guess what you are evaluating is is the ability to portray what that sort of existential crisis is, as opposed to like, is he a robot or not? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, and it's like when you're playing a robot, like as an actor, I think it's more challenging to pull from your own emotional experiences to portray like the robot first encountering emotions because it's not going to be the same experience like it's more like children first discovering something new but also they're not because they're probably like super crazy smart Mm -hmm. so like i think it's a lot harder to like relate to what that experience would be like as a person portraying that yeah which is you know another challenge like it's sort of it's uh i think that's what makes robot stories so fascinating is because it is something so alien to our own experience but also something that we can connect to because it's still like we have been children before and like been exposed to like new things that everyone else seems to already know it's just the perspective is different when you're a being that still has like adult intelligence at the same time. Like it's a, it's a, it's a weird contradiction that I think is always really interesting. Yeah. Well, let's get into this particular robot's journey over the course of this episode, because there is a pretty identifiable arc over the course of this episode. So yeah, let's do it. So this episode opens with a very brief, very, very, very brief scene of Bromley being discovered and abducted by a machine man as he attempts to drive into a shipyard undetected. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know why he was going there. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish. I just know that he wasn't supposed to be there. They were testing out some sort of dampener on their trackers, 
and it didn't go well. <laughs> you know what's funny is I forgot that the scene happened until – like I watched it the first time. Mm-hmm. And then when they bring up later, like Bromley was kidnapped. I was like, oh, when did that happen? And it wasn't until I watched it the second time today before we recorded. I was just like, oh, wait. That scene was literally there at the beginning of the episode and I somehow just – completely blanked out of my head, did not even recognize it when it was on. (laughs) It is a very purely functional scene and they don't even like waste time explaining like what he was doing. Just the Mm -hmm. fact that he was somewhere where he wasn't supposed to be and he got caught. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's important to know that Bromley got kidnapped for this episode because it comes up later, (laughs) sneaks Mm -hmm. up on you. Mm -hmm. So elsewhere, Peter and Shane are visiting some sort of construction site. Uh, We learn eventually that it's a demolition site where a crew of bestials are working alongside two chimeras. What in the world? Uh Uh-huh. Genetically engineered for demolition and excavation, one of which is a rhino whale. I don't really understand the whale part of that, but the next one I understand a little bit more, a mole elephant. The mole elephant is the one that's meant for excavation. So I get that. It's basically like combine the digging uh, elements of a mole with the size and strength of an elephant. And you've got an excavator. The rhino is just charging things. I guess a rhino is not big enough. So combine it with a whale. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. They even put little text boxes mm-hmm. to explain what they are yeah which they've never i mean they've they've used it for like settings like like the next day or like at someone's house or in the basement but this isn't even they like never... that these are like not comic font <laughs> boxes which makes me wonder if it was like a network note where it's just like this is okay everything in the show is weird but this is like too weird you need to explain what the hell this is to the kids watching well here's the thing i i it's funny because i don't think kids would necessarily question it but I think when you get into realizing that an entire population on this planet are humanoid sentient beast people, introducing any sort of animal that is not like them into the environment raises so many questions. So simply categorizing them as something different, I could see being something that was considered important because even on this even on this one construction site, you have a chimera that is part rhinoceros and a bestial who is a rhinoceros. So you have a, a rhino bestial working alongside a rhino chimera, and they're very, I guess, obviously like different levels of intellect and sentience and ability. It's like it's very strange. Yeah. So I wonder I wonder if someone was like, we really should clarify that like these chimera are not just incredibly massive, intelligent, sentient beings, that they're still sort of like the animals of this world. That would really change the game for everything if uh Oh yeah. If bestials could just be giants. Yeah, that's that makes sense actually. I mean it's just a Pluto goofy situation. It's just yeah. like it's a little weird. I mean, but it does make sense for this setting because presumably, based on only the things that we know, the chimera were probably made by the high evolutionary just like the bestials mm-hmm. were. So, yeah. It's all it's all weird fucked up genetic tampering. Yep. It's just uh when you introduce different levels of it, it gets it gets even more fucked up. Especially chimeras are just always weird. It's always yep. uncomfortable. Especially yep. when you present it that way. <laughs> Look at you, Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> uh-huh. This isn't like magic chimeras. This is like science chimeras. It's ugh, nightmares. Yeah. yeah. They're cool designs, though. 
very cool designs. I really like I like their designs. I think they're interesting. They fit well into this into this this series. Yeah. So. But yeah. yeah, so that's sort of the setting. Uh, some new interesting stuff. Uh, Shane notes, and I think this is an important thing to note. Shane notes that the demolition is happening at the same location where Naoko and many others were held captive by the symbiote. So uh, we are to understand that this above ground demolition site is on top of the chambers that we talked about last episode couple episodes ago i don't remember exactly but two episodes ago now yeah yeah yeah. so i don't know i i think we've mentioned that these 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 writers are smart i don't think that's a mistake to point that out i don't know if anything comes of it but i do think it's an interesting detail for the world something that's easily missed but uh yeah intriguing nonetheless i like the subtle continuity of it Mm -hmm. uh and i think that there's a conspiracy happening especially when you consider there's the kind of sort of throwaway line in that where evil nests episode where naoko is like i thought the chambers were destroyed and then like carnage is like we just wanted you to think that like that stuff we didn't even see um so it seems like there's things going on behind the scenes which you know we know that venom and carnage are working for the evolutionary so like even if they have their own agenda, like they are ostensibly working for him. So like, I, uh, there's something going on. Like somebody, yeah. pe- people know more than we think that they do. Yep. It's not very clear where, but it's, I, it's, it seems intentional. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter and Shane are just kind of like standing at a fence watching this demolition happen. And Peter manages to attract the attention of a baboon, I guess, bestial, who tells them that humans aren't allowed to be around the construction site, which you can't really assign a reasoning to it because we learn over the course of the series that like humans are not allowed a lot of places. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say whether that's part of this potential conspiracy or just bestials limiting humans uh, movement, which is also entirely possible. But basically says like, you guys aren't allowed around here. Get out of here. Go away. And Peter says, well, hold up. I was, I was going to, do a news feature on you and the workers and these safety folks. But I guess if you're not interested, we'll just leave. And I guess this is enough for the baboon to be like, yeah, okay. Uh, you could stick around. You could take my picture and stuff. Oh, it's, he's a, it's, it's just because he's a narcissist. Because yeah. the fact that he throws in like, oh, you can even take my picture. Like uh-huh. he just, uh, he wants to be, <laughs> who doesn't want to be written about in the paper, especially construction workers are never written about in a paper. So the idea that like, oh, you're going to interview me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, I mean, he lets him in and Peter starts taking pictures and uh, baboon bestial is all kinds of, you know proud of what they're doing and, and showing off for or whatever i guess showboating is probably the better yeah better better way to put it yep 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 now while peter is taking pictures there's a, a number of damaged machine men that are also being excavated one of the workers a rhino bestial points out that the service number of one of the machine men is x51 which they say is a number old enough to designate it like the actual oldest operational machine man they say it's like over two decades old so he has been around for a while, and he's also like a slightly different design than the ones that we normally see. I think like he and the, and a couple of the other ones I think that are around him that are sort of lying in the pile, they're similar. Like they have the same color scheme and everything, but he's a little bit like his face is like longer and more slender. So it's clearly like meant to be like an actual older model of like the newer models that we see all the time now. Yes, yeah, not not quite as bulky and like aggressive looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, before the baboon bestial can scrap X-51, because basically what they're planning on doing is just like throwing them in one of those like metal compactors, X-51, for lack of a better term, like wakes up and objects to that, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Uh, mm-hmm. The baboon bestial attempts to use some sort of like taser-like tool on X-51, I think, to just sort of like open him up and see what's going on because X-51's acting sort of funny based on how machine men are programmed to act. But X-51 stops this by firing uh, at the bestial with his finger lasers, and this causes the bestial to drop that tool in front of the mole elephant, Mm -hmm. which, unsurprisingly, causes the mole elephant and the rhino whale to begin rampaging. Uh, So chaos begins to (laughs) happen at the construction site. Yep, yep, yep. I like like his line, you know, when when the X-51 is, like, pleading. He's just like, this unit has value. It's so mm-hmm. sad. What I th- think I really liked about this episode is is that I think it's pretty aware that this is a kind of well-treaded, like, robot story. So, like, it doesn't really spend any time on, like, trying to get you to get it because it knows that you get it. It's just, mm-hmm. like, it's an old robot. It's just evolved or had a malfunction. Doesn't really matter. Like, it just, it's starting to, like, it achieves self-awareness in one of the many ways that you've seen robots on movies and TV achieve self-awareness. You know it can happen. And guess what? It's happened. And it's sort of like, so we kind of get have to get to skip, like, any awkward setup. It's just like, there it is. And now we can see his arc unfold, which is yeah. really nice and, like, a lot more satisfying than having to waste any time on explaining it. Yeah. No, I, I like that, too. It's it's doing what this show has done well at only explaining enough. Uh, well, I guess sometimes does well in only explaining enough. This is like the perfect story for them to do that with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the bestial baboon calls for backup because uh, the the chimera are rampaging, but also because one of the, the machine men, X-51, is malfunctioning. And uh, amidst the chaos, Peter's like, we got to get out of here. So he tries to flee with Shane, but they're actually tossed in like separate directions by the mole elephant, like emerging from the ground uh, right underneath them. And so Shane like falls, gosh, probably like 20 feet. <laughs> it like lands like on his back. It looks yeah! very painful. Like, I was so fully <laughs> expecting Peter to like do some unadvised superheroing out of costume. Yeah. He falls and it just for didn't a very happen. long time. He mm-hmm. falls for such a long time and lands hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, remember the, remember the rule about no kids in danger? Not here. Oh yeah. Doesn't apply to this show <laughs> at all. Because Shane is in danger for, like, the next three minutes straight. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, Peter does end up suiting up and webs the mole elephant in an attempt to save Shane, but we don't know what happens because the opening theme starts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After that great theme song that we're all dancing to, the initial webs break, so he ups the web content. So this, uh, uh, once the mole elephant has been restrained, uh, Spidey goes over to X-51 and sees that X-51 actually, like, protected Shane during this whole debacle, which kind of clues him in that, oh, wow, those robots usually, like, uh, hunt humans and, like, try to kill them, and uh, he protected them. So that's a little weird. So maybe he's not a bad guy. Yes. So as a result, uh, Spidey actually builds a web shield to protect X-51 when the backup machine men kind of come to try to apprehend them or shoot them down or whatever they're going to do. Yes, yes. Uh, We're seeing more and more of these different ways that Spider-Man uses his web. And I like that they are consistent because it sort of like builds up this toolbox of things that he he can do with his new suit and his webs. The shield we've seen before. So it's cool to see that again. 
uh, and it won't be the last time we see it. So I like that we kind of have this menu of spider web stuff. Yeah, yeah, they they use it very well, and they draw. It's all drawn really well. I mean, you know, the spaghetti webbing thing isn't a new thing. That was plenty on the '90s show too. But like, right. yeah, they use it in enough creative ways, and and it has the right. Like, this is so weird, but it has like the right like viscosity and like feel <laughs> to it. Like it never feels like too goopy or anything. It always feels like that weird, like slightly harder than silly string, like like yeah. feeling that I want it to feel. Like it always looks like that, and and, and they're really consistent about it. Yeah, definitely. So as this shield is sort of taken out by the the machine men, sort of like shot by shot, it's kind of like firing bits and pieces away. Guess who shows up? Lady Ursula, mm-hmm. specifically Ursula in this episode, because I think that's been inconsistent. Yep. Uh, she arrives and calls the machine men off. And she does this because she says that she is sent to retrieve X-51 for study. Uh, Spider-Man is like, well, wait a second. I don't know if I believe you because what's going to happen to X-51 once you're done with them? And Ursula is like, oh, well, yeah, then we're going to recycle them. <laughs> okay. Word well, really travels fast. Like the fact that the knights are like already know that there's a sentient old robot that they want to experiment on and Ursula's just like I'm on it like all right you guys (laughs) this just happened (laughs) yep I feel like based on what we've seen weird choice as far as like which knight to send this seems very much like a job for tiger or vermin my only guess because the fact that she arrives so quickly is that she just happened to already be in the area so they're just like it would have to be you're already there yeah it would have to be So this obviously pisses Spider-Man off because he's realized that X-51 is at least sentient enough to object to what's going on. And that's enough for him. So uh, he prepares to clash with Ursula. She prepares to fight back. uh, And X-51 is actually the one to stop them, saying, no, actually, Spider-Man, you should probably surrender. I've caused enough trouble. You know, this is dangerous. Let's just, like, not hurt anyone else. I'll go with her. Not a big deal so sweet i know it's like right off the bat it's like that sort of like whatever whatever like malfunction or awakening he had like it seems to be the first thing that he thought of the first thing that he thought of was that i have or this unit has value so i have value and then right after that it was just like and if i have value therefore so does everything else like point a to point b like very quickly which i like a lot like he doesn't have to learn it it's just sort of like that should theoretically like be kind of your Mm -hmm. natural the natural evolution of what you think like that's basically what empathy is which a lot of humans don't have that but the Uh fact that he like learns that like instantaneously is so cool and he's so nice about it and he's just like so selfless right off the bat he's a big sweetie yeah i love the way he puts it too i think he says like this human will surrender this unit has caused enough damage or something like that yeah and it is important the way he says those things bt dubs yes yes i like that a lot too you know oh this is this is so funny i don't want to keep going on these tangents but was i i don't remember anything about this episode other than i remember that there was a robot in spider-man unlimited but i don't that's it i remember nothing about it but something about this i think Unless I'm conflating, unless it's like conflated maybe with some other thing that I've seen, I think some of this stuck with me because there's a, a D&D character that I have in like a future campaign that we did um, and actually a character that I wrote in like an actual like fiction story that is like a robot that looks kind of almost has kind of a similar design to him in terms of like being <laughs> kind of a slender robot. Yeah. That also like 
is a robot that gains sentience and refers to itself as this unit, like, in the third person. Interesting. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Did you watch the Zeta spinoff series? No, I never. I didn't know that okay. existed until it was off the air. Huh. So I've, I've never. That's the one DCAU thing that I've never seen an episode of. Because I thought I was wondering if maybe it was like a conglomeration of different things because Zeta's design in the spinoff is drastically different than the design in the Batman Beyond episodes because oh, I think really? they wanted to make him. Uh, well, first off, in the Batman Beyond episodes, he doesn't have a face, which I think is hard to sell as like a main character of a TV show. Mm-hmm. So they give him like a different head that has an actual face on it. And I think it's sort of like this slender cylindrical vibe as well. Yeah. So <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised if it was just sort of like a calm, like a big sort of like mishmash of all these different types of yeah. 90s, 2000 type robot characters. <laughs> It's also, I mean, it's also like it's a, it makes sense. Like, I don't think that's a hard thing to come up with if you're trying to think sure. of like how a robot, a sentient, a newly sentient robot would talk, yeah, or look like. So, like, you know, it's not that original. It's just funny that like I was watching it. I'm just like, oh, I've literally like played this character before. Did <laughs> I just steal it from Spider-Man Unlimited and had no memory of it? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Spider-Man is obviously like I don't. I don't want to surrender, but he is pretty quickly convinced when he realizes Shane is still nearby. And I think he even says, like, I've put Shane in enough danger already. So he kind of throws his hands up and says, like, fine, whatever. But does attach a tracker to X-51. Yes. So that evening, Spider-Man does follow the tracer signal to a skyscraper. Um, But as he says, um, everything around here is so complicated. Or he says, (laughs) why does everything have to be so complicated around here? Because there is a literal giant force field on the entire skyscraper. A hilariously Um, shaped force field. Because it doesn't just like straightforwardly encapsulate the skyscraper. It's like the same shape as the skyscraper. mm. So it's like the exact distance all the way around regardless of the shape of the skyscraper. Yeah. Yeah. So funny. Yeah, so that sucks. So he can't uh, just infiltrate it like above ground uh, like he wanted to just from web swinging. So he decides to circumvent this by enlisting the help of John Jameson and Karen. Karen! I really, I'm paying close attention now to like at what point Karen ever gets a personality because <laughs> I I feel like I like Karen based on like her performance and, like, I guess the idea of her being just a cool lady in a human revolution. But also, she's literally just literally just the cool lady in the human revolution. Mm-hmm. And up through this episode and having also seen the next one, I'm keeping a very close eye on, like, does she ever get a personality? Or is she always just the cool lady in the human revolution? Because that's not enough to be a person, unfortunately. Karen is like, there was, there was a Survivor player once who by all measurements was like, you know, a strong woman who was very capable and like intelligent and, you know, had agency and all these types of things. But the other people in the game like criticized her for just like not being anyone. They're like, who are you? We don't know anything about you. (laughs) And her, her literal response was like, is there something wrong with just like being a neat lady? And I feel like that's Karen. Where it's like, Karen, I don't dislike you. You're, like, capable. You have agency. You're strong. You have a lot of skills. But, like, who are you? You're just, like, a neat lady. (laughs) Right. I I have a hard time gravitating towards you, even though I appreciate everything you're capable of. Yeah. It's it's a little frustrating, you know, considering she's – they have, like, two major – 
female characters, like other than like Lady Vermin, who's like an antagonist, like two mm-hmm. protag, like kind of heroic female characters. Naoko, I think, is actually really, really fl- well fleshed, fleshed out, and they continue yeah. to do so. The fact that Karen is like the action, the action one, like the uh-huh. one who's actually like involved in Spider-Man's life and Human Revolution stuff, like should have, you know, probably has like an interesting backstory or something, or should have something like that. Which, you know, we don't have to dive into that immediately. We haven't seen everybody's backstory yet. Right. But we also have had no hints of her backstory. <laughs> whereas everyone else, we've at least had some kind of reference or, like, seen how yeah. they react in certain situations or something. And she has nothing. All of her personality traits, anything that would give us any sort of indication of anything she believes is entirely reliant on other people's stories or experiences. Yeah. So the way that she reacts to how Bromley's been treated, the way that she reacts to events in future episodes, it all has to do with other people. And it's it's like when you actually strip away all of those things, it's like I, I, it's fine to believe these things for other people, but like we literally have no idea why you do any of the things you do or how you got right. into it. <laughs> right. Like, I think based on this episode, I feel like they're, they seem to be trying to go for like, she's the heart of the group. Like she tells people like she sees things for what it is and doesn't, you know, when someone is like, I don't know, letting their rage overcome them. Like she sets them straight or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, even we then it's sort of why, or we don't yeah, know we, why yet, I guess is the better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get some more, learn more about her later, but it's frustrating that like, she's been pretty central to a number of stories now and that seems kind of like a a pretty glaring flaw so far. Yeah. I think it's one of the bigger character flaws. I, I can't think of anybody we've seen this frequently except for maybe Ursula, but I don't think we've seen her as frequently yeah. as Karen, who doesn't really have much of a personality. And Ursula has at least like a one note personality. Yeah. I think that that's, <laughs> that's fine to have, especially as a villain. Like, I think that that's yeah. fine to have a mixture of like deep characters and characters that are just like, that's, that's just all they are. Like that's, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Karen kind of falls in the middle and like, is just kind of a nothing is, is, is a real bummer. You I know what it is? Karen, however they want in that moment. And those yeah. things aren't always consistent. Exactly. Exactly. And she, she feels like sometimes when, I, like, really like a Power Rangers character, especially, like, an early one. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of like, well, why do you like them? And it's just like, I don't actually know. <laughs> they, yeah. Like, I guess I like the actor, but, like, they have no personality because this is, like, early <laughs> Power Rangers. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. They do cool stuff. Okay, yeah, but, like, what about them? Right, exactly. Uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Exa- no, that makes sense. Karen could be a, a Power Rangers character. <laughs> <laughs> she does things. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So he goes with John and Karen through the sewers to underneath the skyscraper. That's how he's using them to help him. The The wrinkle in this is that Jameson explains that they're only helping in order to retrieve Bromley in a hostage exchange. So they, they, they aren't interested in like rescuing X-51 as a rescue mission, they're interested in acquiring like an item that they can use in a ransom, essentially. And now here's my question, and I suppose there's an easy answer to this. But if there's an easy answer to this, they could have alluded to it or directly addressed it. Why, if they want Bromley back, are they breaking into this skyscraper to get X-51 and not just going to wherever they think Bromley is and breaking in to get Bromley? I guess they don't know where Bromley is, is the problem. I suppose that is probably the answer, but but they don't address it, which leaves room to be like, wait a second, why aren't you just going to get Bromley? 
Yeah, I think I think the thought process is that at this point they literally have zero that they can trade for Bromley, I guess. And then this is like the one thing that they can. And I guess they just happen to know how to get into the skyscraper because um, they do it pretty easily. Like they <laughs> And they do benefit from working with Spider-Man. So I guess it does make sense if he's going to approach them. They're like, OK, well, this is an opportunity. We, we might not have gone for X-51 before. Mm-hmm. We were interested. But now we have like the right tools and that Spider-Man is with us. OK. Yeah. Could have been written a little more clearly for my taste, but yeah. that's OK. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things. I like this episode mostly for the X-51 story, but there's a couple of writing things in here that feel a little loose or a little weak. Yeah. There's another one in the end that I'm sort of like, eh, about. And this is this is definitely yeah. one of them. It's just kind of unclear. I think that's the right way to put it, too, because I don't think there's anything in this where I'm like, that was bad. I'm just yeah. sort of like, <laughs> tighten that, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely – it's not as, like, weak as – like the episode before this, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Git episode, but um, it yeah, it's just a couple of places that seemed like they weren't really thinking yeah. through what they were writing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this is this is interesting. So oh, yeah, this is very interesting. So obviously they want to get their friend Bromley back. Like that's that's a given. But John kind of doubled down, doubles down on the idea that it's not just that they want to get their friend back. It's that it's very important to get Bromley back because actually. Every, according to him, everyone always breaks when they're held captive by the knights. Mm-hmm. And we see a flashback to John Jameson himself being restrained by a number of shadowy figures who we assume are just people like the knights working directly under the high evolutionary. And they actually brand him with that crescent moon symbol on his shoulder that we noticed before that we didn't – we weren't sure if it was a tattoo or a scar. It turns out it's kind of both uh, because it's a brand <laughs> yeah. on his arm that they're giving How him. How were we going to guess that? Right. <laughs> we were both just like slightly <laughs> off. Right, right. <laughs> There's no obviously no explanation to like what this means. Um, I, I think you can maybe have some ideas for what it could mean, but we don't know for what it means right now. And the main thing I think that you're supposed to get from it is that part of the reason that John is such a flaming, like asshole, angry dickhead all the time <laughs> is that probably not long after he landed on Counter Earth, he was actually abducted and I guess tortured by uh, mm-hmm. by the people working for the High Evolutionary, and seems that they broke him. In the same way that they're afraid, he's afraid that they're going to break Bromley. Yeah, it also explains why he is so fervently not only helping the revolutionary, but insistent on seeing all of that through, not just from like a revenge sort of situation, but if he's talking about everybody who's captured is broken by them and he's worried that Bromley will reveal information, it is not far-fetched to assume that John Jameson was captured and revealed information that could have hurt the revolutionaries. And so he feels indebted to them uh, and is very sort of fired up about making sure that he kind of pays back whatever it is he revealed about about them. We don't know the timeline of it because it hasn't been revealed to us. So it's possible that it was shortly after and that wasn't the case. But if it is the case, it certainly just sort of feeds into the numerous reasons for why John Jameson on this world is so fiery yeah i still like i don't like him in a lot of ways but i get i get what they're doing with him i don't i think that that actually i think it's very intentional and yeah he still pisses me off sometimes and i i don't really like when he talks most of the time because it's so yeah. aggro so aggro constantly but <laughs> i get yeah, no i don't i don't like i don't like him but i i appreciate his character like i think he's he's they're they're doing with him things that contribute to the story effectively 
but I, I don't I don't like him. I don't know that I'm supposed to like him. I don't know if they're ever really aiming for us to like him. It just depends on like where his story ends up going. And I think the fact that we don't like him and the fact that that might be intentional kind of opens his story up in a number of ways that make him an unpredictable character, which I think is cool. That's true because he it, it does seem kind of intentional because he's basically like an antagonist in this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, so that that makes sense. It's interesting that they're like posing him as an unlikable character who like is heroic in a lot of ways, but does a lot of shitty stuff too. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Yeah. It also serves to allow Spider-Man to like pretend to be neutral when he feels like it because he has an antagonist <laughs> in the revolutionaries, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he's so, like I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. To pretend to be neutral is a good way to put it. Right. Like sure right. you are, buddy. Sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the trio of John Jameson, Karen, and Spider-Man arrive at the skyscraper, and they find Sir Ram operating and, I guess, running diagnostics on X-51. They end up clashing with Sir Ram and his two assistants, uh, who are a lizard bestial and a gorilla bestial. And uh, it's, I mean, it's it's probably a little bit of a longer sequence than it needed to be, but it wasn't uninteresting. (laughs) It yeah. doesn't end the way that I would like necessarily. Yeah. There's a couple of f- funny things in it. Like the well, not funny, just interesting. One's funny, one's interesting. The interesting thing is that the lizard lady has like a wild voice. Like they add so yeah. like a vocal effect to her. Uh-huh. Like it's like this like, a- like raspy alien like laid over vo- voice laid over it. Um, which you know every other beast just like talks like a person. So it's yeah. funny that they gave her this like extra like creepy uh like monster voice but uh it's cool well they both both she and the gorilla have like very distinct voices because they're bad bestials you know what i mean i guess so yeah (laughs) yeah the the other thing that's funny is that there's one moment when when all like the kind of the chaotic fighting is happening um and john jameson does this like he attempts to do like this really cool like kick and he has like a masculine boast like yeah see if you can handle this and literally as soon as he goes to kick the gorilla the gorilla just like casually just grabs him by the leg and tosses him oh like, I without love even trying that. it's yes. so funny yes <laughs> and I would love that more <laughs> if this didn't conclude with Spider Man sort of like besting Ram or uh, Sir Ram pardon me and John Jameson. <laughs> besting his gorilla bestial after struggling so hard and then karen freaking karen who we've only seen as capable being (laughs) saved by spidey because oh that's right it's still 1999 and she's still a woman in a superhero cartoon (laughs) and there are men on screen so of course even though john was struggling so much more than she was uh yeah no she's the one that's gonna need saving here because i don't know she tripped or something whatever <laughs> whatever oh, so dumb annoying. i was so mad at that i was so mad at that yeah i was like right. oh cool they're all sort of like struggling with their opponents but then they figure out like clever ways to overcome them because spider-man thinks of a clever way to overcome sir ram john jameson thinks of a clever way to overcome the gorilla and then no nope 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 karen is saved by spidey <laughs> So cool. stupid. Cool, Karen. <sighs> Who are you? <laughs> I don't know. When she's a, when they need a damsel, she's a damsel. When they need like a, a, a you know, deus ex, mach, deus ex machina. I never know how to say that. That's what deus she is. Deus ex Karen. <laughs> deus ex Karen. Exactly. Deus ex ma Karen. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know. There, she just needs a little more consistency for me. And that's not her fault. That's, come on, writers. Figure out who Karen is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Well, even if she sucks, figure out who she is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let's give her some kind of personality other yeah. than just like the lady. Yeah. Well, all the foes are webbed up now. Uh, they disable X-51's like magnetized restraints that he was on. That was a funny moment. There's like Spider-Man is like he walks over to the, the, the I guess, table or whatever that, that X-51 is laying on. And he like tries to pull him off the table and he like <laughs> makes struggle noises. And X-51 is like. The table's magnetized. And Spider-Man's <laughs> like, oh, uh, <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. And what's funny is that we find out that, like, he's – X-51 is basically in, like, a bigger suit, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, his head is what his head looks like. Actually, I guess you could maybe argue that potentially – the current machine men that we see, like maybe what X-51 looks like is just like the skeleton or like the naked version of like them. Like they might have the same kind of head underneath. Like, I don't know. I could see that because they all have like the sort of like squinty red eyes, right? So it's not mm-hmm. not unrealistic to think that X-51 probably had a helmet at some point because yeah. his eye, his one eye that you can still see is just like a big round red <laughs> disc, yeah. which is a little strange. So. I would buy it. Yeah, which it's I love it. I love and I he he has like one blo- like blown up like basically a scar essentially for his other eye that's not there. <laughs> yeah, that never gets fixed. Even though he's capable of fixing himself, he never fixes that, which I'm into. Cuz it gives him character. It like, yeah. makes him look different and it yeah. gives him personality. It makes him more human. It's cool. But no, he basically like sheds this like armor that he's wearing. Like that's how he's able to more easily get off of the magnetized table. Um, so now it's like kind of a smaller, slimmed down version. Which you know, it's a detail that was kind of unnecessary, but I think it's kind of cool because I it almost kind of plays a little bit into his evolution, I guess, like like metaphorically a bit. Because you know, it's just like another piece of his like old like machine life that he's shedding. And I get, I mean, you could argue he looks a little more human now because he's not as bulky. He's a little more like kind of slender. He's still like robot shaped and very tall, but (laughs) he's a little more human looking now. Yeah. Yeah. So they get him out of his restraints and he's out of his big shell and they begin to leave the skyscraper because one thing that X-51 is able to do for them is turn the force field off, which is pretty cool. He does some sort of like robot thing with the console or something. I don't know. But he's able to turn the force field off so they don't have to go back underground. And as they sort of get to the window or as they're about to like leave the skyscraper, Spider-Man and John realize like they have different plans for X-51. John still obviously wants to take X-51 and use him as a hostage. And Spider-Man still doesn't want that to happen. So Spider-Man luckily is already the one holding on to him. And so Spider-Man's like, you know what, John, you do your thing. Do what you have to do. I'm going to do what I have to do. And he swings away with X-51. And John's like, all right, fine. And like pulls out a freaking gun. Like, God, John, chill the fuck Uh out, dude. Uh Uh-huh. I do like that moment where where Spider-Man, this is, I think this is something that fits particularly into this show. Not just because it's like edgy or whatever, but because, you know, we've talked about sort of like the despair of this show and it potentially being one of the reasons people might not like it. But I do think it is carried out throughout the whole of everything we've watched is this sort of like desperation. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate the fact that Spider-Man just is kind of like giving this exhausted response of like, you know what? You do what you're going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and we'll see what happens. It's like, oh, damn. Like, okay. (laughs) You know, and you know what he says? He says, because John's like, that thing's coming with us. And Spider-Man's like, he's not a thing. He's a person. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah. 
it's interesting uh, because Spider-Man, this Spider-Man, this Peter is not to this point the person I would have expected to connect first. But I guess when the opposition is John, it does make sense and it allows Peter to be a bit more like tuned in, right? Because there have been other moments like with Goblin where you're like, Peter, you are being an absolute like dolt right now. <laughs> but in this case, yeah, let's it he's he recognizes very quickly that this robot is is a person. So I like that he asserts that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice. I love it. Ugh. And then Karen's like, Don't don't shoot Spider Man, John. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Thank Thanks. you. I mean, you're right. I don't I don't understand why you I mean, she's she's like the calm. That's this is the moment that I was referring to as sort of like they're trying to make her kind of like the heart of the group, whereas she's like the calm one who can be like, I see what's really happening, and you shouldn't do that. Like, have a reality check, John. Maybe that's um, her one personality trait is she's always calm. I guess I don't so. even think that's true though, because I I feel like we see this is jumping ahead, but I feel like we see in a later episode that she uh, isn't always calm. No, I, I think she can be provoked by anger. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen her like yell angrily yeah. before. No, so not, yeah, not even no. that. I mean, it's it's fine here because John is being stupid and she's just like, "Hey, buddy, you're being dumb. Don't do that." Mm-hmm. Which, but then he gets, then he like returns his line to her that I kind of don't really get because then after that, basically all Karen, Karen just gives him a reality check. Don't shoot Spider Man. That's a stupid thing to do. He's yeah. technically still your friend, even if you're like you're not mm-hmm. feeling him right now. And then John's like. Well, I'm glad you know who our friends are, which first of all, like, okay, drama queen, like, uh-huh. <laughs> sorry. But then it's also like, I don't understand why, I don't know. It's just a weird, it's just like a weird response for him to have to her when she hasn't really like done anything to show that. Like all she did was tell him to not shoot Spider-Man. <laughs> and we don't have anything that's informed that line to this exactly. point. Like Spider-Man's line makes perfect sense because he's been opposed by the revolutionaries before and he's opposed the revolutionaries before so it it makes sense that he's he's gonna get to a point where he's like you know what we're kind of on the same side but like whatever it's fine you do your thing i'm gonna do my thing sometimes we're gonna line up we have things that inform that we have Mm -hmm. nothing to inform that john has been burned by friends (laughs) i don't or or you know it's it's like I, I think that it was more, it was pointed to that like he like trust Karen out more than anybody else when like I don't know she's just, in this situation like it doesn't make sense I feel like he's like really mad right now and it's weird that like what else was she gonna do like what else did he expect her to do other than like like did he expect her to like walk away like I don't understand I just don't understand where the line's coming from and if it was part of a larger conversation where if they kept talking and then Karen was just like well you know blah 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 like you know the re- Spider-Man's also your friend or like oh, yeah I do think Bromley's my friend or something like that like but they don't they just end the scene and Karen just like gives an approving nod like yeah. so whose side are you on? like wh- where are you at right I don't understand I guess I guess it's supposed to be like that's supposed to kind of cement that like yeah she is firmly on the human revolution side not Spider-Man's side She's going to stand by John to rescue Bromley, which fair. It's just like, I don't know. That's a lot to build onto one moment on a character that we don't know anything about after a line that doesn't really make sense in context. I guess. I feel like I feel like this is not the strongest example of Karen planting her f- like flag of allegiance to her side. That's my thing. Yeah. And it doesn't... then on top of that, if it's supposed to be like a this is John's most trusted person or that Karen is in fact the sort of like perfect combination of like logic and heart for the team where she like grounds people 
then why that line? Why not something where he says, like, you know, I don't know how I would do this without you. Yeah. If we're going aggro, then Spider-Man's lucky you were here. Like, there's there's plenty of other things you could do to sort of illustrate that Karen grounds John. Yeah, it's just a Talking weird... Talking about friends is so strange. Because <laughs> I guess they're trying to piggyback on her saying that Spider-Man's your friend, that that's why you shouldn't shoot him, um, which shouldn't be your only reason <laughs> for not shooting someone, first of all. Like, I would more <laughs> buy he didn't shoot him simply because Karen was there and it would upset Karen. Like, that's yeah. more believable to me. <laughs> right. It's, it's just, it's, I, I mean, we're putting a lot onto this, like, one line. I think it really just boils down to that. It's just yeah. a weird line. <laughs> yeah. That's, yep, that's very, very fair. We're examining it far more than they thought about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hello, amazing friends. We'd just like to take a minute to give a special thank you to our spectacular and up patrons, Gemma Nicole and Katie. And if you are interested in becoming a patron, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash wallopingwebsnappers. We have three different tiers that you can opt into, the first of which is our $1 tier where you get early access to episodes, a bunch of Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes such as our Spider-Bite mini-episodes, you get to participate in our Walloping Word Snappers interactive improv game, and you get your own random villain alter ego. If you join us at our spectacular level at $5, you will get all previous rewards, in addition to our monthly After Dark commentary episodes, a downloadable high-quality poster of our logo art, a personal on-air shout-out on each episode we record while you're a patron, and a Twitter shout-out and Twitter and Instagram follow once you become a patron. And if you really love what we're doing and you want to be a part of it, you can join our amazing tier at $30, where if you stick around at that amazing tier, you could guest on the episode. That's right. You could be on an episode of Walloping Web Snappers to talk about anything that you would like that is in the Spider-Man canon or mythos. So at the end of the day, it's you guys who lets us keep doing what we're doing. So thank you for that. No matter what level you're able to contribute or if you're just an avid listener who's stopping by, trust us, your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Thank you. Thanks. So after all that melodrama, um, Spider-Man brings X-51 to the clinic uh, where they're greeted by Shane. He kind of gives a little bit of exposition real quick, like, oh, Naoko's out. Peter's Peter's out. I think he says, like, Noko specifically is out on a call. So that confirms that he's alone, and he recognizes X-51 as being the uh, the robot that rescued him. So yeah. he's totally on board with hanging out with a cool robot friend, which I like. Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, right, right. Especially one that just saved your life. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So Spider-Man realizes that X-51 is, like, pretty damaged. I think X-51 even says that he needs repairs. So Spider-Man's like, okay, Shane, I'm going to leave X-51 here with you. I'm going to go see what I can find as far as, like, spare parts go. And Shane's like, oh, but actually, uh, you don't need to do that. And he walks into the closet and grabs a huge box of a bunch of spare parts. And X-51 comments, like, those are not parts that humans are supposed to have. Those are some, like, fancy-schmancy parts, <laughs> which prompts Shane to give a little bit of backstory about his father, who who we, to this point, don't really know very much about. So he says, my dad was an inventor, and so we have all these parts left over. These parts were his. And then we get this cool moment where X-51 recognizes that Shane is sad when he's telling this story. He and says, so he, this is sadness. Yeah, he says, this is sadness. Yeah. So this is kind of the first indication. And I think one of the more 
straightforward, sort of visible uh, pieces of evidence that X-51 is growing right before our eyes in this episode, that there's like a change happening on screen in the way that he's seeing things and experiencing things. He's so sweet. I love him so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I like how the dad stuff has been like kind of peppered in steadily. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's definitely, there's a really, I, I like how this, how this show is serialized in, in a way like it's not, it's not heavily serialized, but they, they're doing a nice job sort of like peppering in the references and the continuity and like slowly building these little mysteries or backstories on characters, but still like letting every episode kind of stand out on its own. It's doing serialization different than the 90s show did and and, yeah. dif- and and different than even like Spectacular does too. But I like what it's particularly doing. It does feel very like from 1999, 2000, like how a lot of shows did that. Um, but I think it's doing it well. I, I like this kind of sort of like half serialization. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm into it because, well, especially since we are able to binge it. Although I think it would still be satisfying uh, week to week, but just these yeah. little bits and pieces that you can sort of collect along the way. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm into it. So back at the revolutionaries' base, the uh, uh, the Karen. That's what I was going to say. The Karen. <laughs> the Karen. Not not there yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Karen reports to John that the High Evolutionary has agreed to trade Bromley for X fifty one, but uh, she notices that this is kind of weird and sort of suspicious about it because you know. They heard from Sir Ram that they were just going to, like, open up X-51 and then probably just scrap him. Like, they were going to be like, here's the problem. Okay, throw him away. So, like, why would they be willing to give away a vital hostage for this thing they're going to scrap? So she's like, it's probably a trap, buddy. Like, come on. (laughs) But John's like, no, we have to do it. We're going to fight him off. Uh, I'm a man. It's fine. Who cares? (laughs) But back at the clinic, uh, we cut back there, and um, we see X-51, he's kind of been reading, like, a bunch of the books that Shane has, trying to, like, read up on himself, I guess, or just, like, electronics in general, fill in any kind of gaps. Um, and he's able to do that, because I'm sure, because he's a robot, he'd read, like, super speed. So he's processing all this information, and he says that he fails to find an answer to why he is different than any other machine man, and he starts to have a crisis of existence, this is where he switches from using this unit to I, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just that it happens, it's that he corrects himself. Yeah. So he starts to say a sentence with this unit and then pauses and says, I. It's <laughs> so beautiful. It's like, oh my God, you just recognized yourself as like a separate individual sort of like unique being in the world. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's so, it's like self-actualization. It's so great. Yeah. Uh, it's so good. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. But, you know, he's he's just kind of, like you said, kind of perceiving himself as an individual, but he doesn't really understand, like, why he is the way he is and why he's mm-hmm. different than the other machine men. So, of course, like any, the, the most human thing you can do, he has a crisis of existence. Right. Having a he asks, literal why? existential crisis. <laughs> why do I exist? And Spider-Man's yeah. like, oh, buddy. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> yeah, You don't I even love know the half this. of it, man. <laughs> this, is, this is actually my favorite part of the episode, to be quite yeah, honest. because it's so good. X-51 begins to have this existential crisis because he can recognize that he's able to ask the question why about his own existence. It it, it kind of starts as this, why am I different from the other machine men? Why did this happen to me? And then turns basically into a, why am I 
question mark. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man, I think, responds by saying, oh, man, like this is this is a question that, you know, philosophers have been exploring for hundreds, thousands of years or whatever he says. And X-51 says, what answer did they find? And Spider-Man <laughs> says, you know, basically they didn't. Everyone has to figure that out for themselves. Everyone has to find the meaning of life for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I actually love this. Oh, I love it so much. I love, I it. love the fact that this episode both doesn't explain why X-51 is the unit that has this sort of sense of identity, nor does it ever get to a point where X-51 really sort of like answers this question for mm-hmm. himself. He finds direction. He, he he finds desire. He recognizes himself as a as an individual, right, and a thinking being, but it doesn't answer those types of questions. And I rem- I remember we were having a conversation on the podcast about the types of things this show wants you to not know and what it wants you to know and where it does that well and where it doesn't. This episode does it well, where it very intentionally doesn't give you answers about something and it's clear they're not going to, and we're not going to get clarity. Yeah. Yes. I also remember we had a conversation off mic recently about the way that people react to particular pieces of media that don't give answers. Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that this episode for some people would be like kind of infuriating because it poses questions explicitly that it will not give you answers to. But I love it so much. Well, I, this is the type of like you don't yeah. get an answer that I love, 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 love. And I'm not even talking about the meaning of life one, right? Like that's not even the big question that I'm appreciating they're not answering. They don't answer in this episode. I guess this is sort of technically jumping ahead, but who cares because there's nothing to spoil here. They don't ever say like X51, this is the reason you malfunctioned. This is the yeah. reason you are sentient. They don't do that. And I could see that being the question people would really crave an answer to. Well, that's the thing that I think this episode does really well. Because I, I do think that that's an issue when, when people have issues with like mysteries not getting solved, which I'm usually fall on the boat where it's just like, I don't care as long as it's like, as long as it feels satisfying, like in other ways, like emotionally, I, I'm fine yeah. with stuff not getting answered. But but I think often people aren't don't feel satisfied because it feels like they were set up with something that like wasn't paid off. In this case, I, I think like the not answering the question, that's like part of the the, the resolution in a way, because it, it it's it's still wrapped up in that meaning of life question, even though if that's not like the explicit question. Like even though in universe, like plot wise, yeah, there is a very specific tangible like thing that we don't get an answer to, which is like what caused you to become sentient. But that's also like the larger question of the part of the larger question of the meaning of life is like, why, why am I who I am? Why was I born as me? And I don't think that that's any different from a robot asking like, why can I be sentient? So, you know, I think even though it's more like it's more possible and plausible to have a logical answer to that question, I think like it makes it more satisfying to not have that answer because that's exactly what it's like to live as a human. Nobody knows why consciousness is a thing. So like I think that's what makes this particular version of this story so effective because there are other versions of this story that will specifically point to something that the robot observed or experienced or was sort of triggered by to say like, oh, well, this robot experienced this thing. 
And they might not give you like the technical reason as to why that particular robot glitched or whatever, but they still feel like compelled to point to something. They're yeah. not even pointing to something in this. They're just saying this robot woke up. Yeah, Period. I love that. I love it. <laughs> and and you know, nothing that it's saying is like revolutionary or mind blowing or no. anything. But for, for but I think it, it executes what it's doing very well. It executes this this like kind of story archetype really well. But also like you know it is still a kids show ultimately. And if this is the, a kid's first exposure to this type of story, which it very well might be because it's a very oh, yeah. common story in adult sci fi, not necessarily as much to this depth in like in, in sci fi made for kids. And I think that this would be a really cool way to kind of get exposure to those questions that, that you know, I think kids have existential questions earlier than we give them credit for. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that this would, this is a, it's a really nice story for a kid to be exposed to and just be like, okay, so I'm not the only one who doesn't understand why I'm me, you know, yeah. even if they can't like really verbalize that or really fully like understand what that question is. Like the fact that the question's there and they're seeing it spelled out on screen via a robot on a Spider-Man cartoon, like is pretty cool. And you know what this story doesn't do that a lot of other ones do. And then I don't even get mad at other stories for doing. I just appreciate this one for not doing it is there's not really that moment in this story where X 51 is like, I've done horrible things. It like his whole conflict is purely existential it's not the I woke up and realized that I've been used as a weapon. I mean, presumably he has, but that's not like the focal point of like what is making him question things, right? It's simply I, I don't understand why I'm awake or why I'm alive or why I'm sentient. Like if you think about iRobot, mm-hmm. that's something where it becomes, you know, the, the robot in that becomes sentient and its motivation is I don't want to serve humans, right? Or humans abuse me. And that's like a big part of the motivation for that robot's crisis and what it what it does if you look at zeta in batman beyond it has a similar sort of uh vibe except it it recognizes that it's been used as an assassin and it doesn't want to do that anymore and those are sort of like the reasons that we focus on and are drawn to those characters emotionally because we're like oh gosh you've been made to do horrible things they don't really do that with this one it's just it's literally just asking why am i alive (laughs) it's literally the focal point of this like emotional journey yeah, uh, and I love that about it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. No, that's that's so true. The that that definitely makes it a unique entry into this. That it's so distilled into that one mm-hmm. question. That's that is ultimately the most important one. Really, yeah. the most relatable <laughs> one too. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Man, it's good. Everything goes to shit. <laughs> I know. So after you know, Spider Man, Spider Man does tell this robot that everyone has to kind of discover the meaning of life for themselves, which is not a thing I ever thought that I'd say on a Spider Man podcast. Um, <laughs> after after that happens, is this uh, show not bad? Huh? Wow, weird, right? Huh? So after this conversation uh, kind of concludes, Spider Man's Spidey sense tingles, and X fifty one. I think he even like he's saying something and it stops mid sentence. Yeah. So something's going on. Spidey like is like kind of reaches for him and it's like, whoa, yo, buddy, what's going on? And then X-51 tosses Spider-Man across the room and escapes through the window. Um, so obviously something something is up. He's uh, he's being taken over or, or, or something like that. Um, so Spidey follows him out, can't reach X-51 because John and Karen are able to like do some maneuvering to like disable them, I guess with like a signal or something like that. It's um, like so- a weird, what is it? Is it like a light or some sort of like weird, like electric beam or something? They I do something. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. It I just remember quickly. thinking like, wow, that's really convenient that they happen to be flying by. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, they like they yeah they like zap him, disable him, and as he like falls, like Karen catches him in her flying convertible, basically. Karen, always where you need her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's her personality. She's just always yeah. there. <laughs> yep. Um, either way, yeah. The two of them flee in their hover truck with X-51 captive with them now. Spidey chases after them like, no, guys, it's a trap, which I don't understand how he knows that. <laughs> but I guess he just assumed from the beginning. That's, yeah, that's. It's really weird. Hmm. Yeah, Karen, Karen would already know that. Karen's already suspicious that it's a trap. <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man might not, but yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And and it makes me like Karen a little bit less the fact that she knows that it's probably a trap and still is just going with John anyway to do this. Like You know, honestly, <sighs> Karen and John and, and I this is this it's wild that this is about to come out of my mouth. No oh, no. But Karen and John both would make a lot more sense if they were fucking. Like if they were sort of a thing. I uh-huh. think they would both make a lot more sense. I mean, there's nothing that says that they aren't though. Well, there's they nothing that says that they aren't, but there's we've gotten zero indication that they are supposed to be a thing. Um, I'm I'm hesitant to say that simply because Karen has had like no characterization to this point, so I hate like oh, God, proposing yeah. that the fix to her character is to like attach her to a man character. <laughs> but God, I, I do yeah. honestly think that a lot of the things that she does and a lot of the things that John decides would make sense if they had some sort of like emotional influence over one another, not from Hmm. like an abusive standpoint, but just from the standpoint that they care about each other. So they consider each other. Right. That makes perfect sense. John is calmed down because he cares about Karen. Karen is sometimes like wrapped up in that or supports John in ways that maybe she shouldn't, which makes it a little bit more typical and stereotypical. So if it actually were the case, I probably wouldn't love it, but it would at least be something that gives some sort of motivation to the things that Karen does. We could probably workshop it and make it more complicated than that, but it's already so basic yeah, and so nothing yep. that like that would at least be a place to start. Yeah, because as it stands, she's just kind of like, she's the heart, but also she's a follower and doesn't really ever fight back. It just kind of does right. whatever the men tell her to. Right. So, like, and she's a badass, except when it's convenient for her not to be. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, man, yeah. Karen, Karen, why are you? Yeah, it, why it, it, are you? Man, it really poses an obnoxious question of like, would I rather have a fleshed out female character that's sort of tropey that I don't necessarily like or a female character who's given no characterization whatsoever? <laughs> like those yeah. those both suck. Like those that's a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I'd rather have Naoko is really the answer. Uh-huh. Yep, that's yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, so later uh, in a subway station that is designated as the exchange location, uh, John and Karen are carrying X-51. They find the Knights of Wondergore with Bromley, so they're prepared to make this exchange happen. Um, but I think there is a couple of like other human revolutionaries with them, so they're not alone. But before the trade is carried out, the Knights, of course, because we all know it was a trap and Karen knew it was a trap and everyone knew it was a trap and came anyway – the knights activate a remote override of X-51, which basically, like, ov- literally overrides his, like, humanity and kind of forces him back into, like, sentry mode. So but he's he now... still seems sentient and aware of what he's doing. I know. I know. Because he's even <laughs> saying, like, I mean, he basically... Because 
they play it ambiguously enough that it's not like horrifying when you're watching it, yeah. but he has, he has enough lines where it's yeah. just like, I have like, I don't know. Oh, I don't remember what he says. I didn't write down. He, what he says, says something. I think he says like, I, I, uh, I have no choice. I think yeah. is one, at least one of the things he says, which acknowledges the fact that he is observing the actions that he is carrying out and that he is not the one specifically deciding them. Yeah, it's luckily if they if he was like pained uh, while he was saying it, that would be a little too much. So I'm glad that they kind yeah. of dial it back a bit. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Well, the show the show that would make him sort of like tortured in that moment is also the show that would have John and Karen fucking but not emotionally attached to one another, and everything would be better. <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and in addition to all of that, they also call in backup machine men. So now there's a whole there's a whole battle that's going to be going on uh, between machine men with the knights and the revolutionaries. Um, so the two sides prepare for a firefight. But Spider-Man, ever the neutral party, of course, uh, <laughs> sure, um, <laughs> arrives to uh, intervene. Spider-Man disarms X-51, and he creates a shield for the revolutionaries. Another shield, baby. Yeah, I love his web shields. They're cool. Yeah. So he's using their cover, or using their cover, they're able to, like, fire upon the knights and the machine men effectively enough to allow Bromley to escape from the knight's grip. And he's able to at least start making his way back over to the revolutionaries. Yeah, the setting for this is interesting because basically the way that the environment is set up, they're in a subway station, but there is, like, a platform on both sides of the track. And so you have the revolutionaries on one side and you have the knights on the other and the the railroad track in between. So in mm-hmm. this moment, like Bromley gets away, but then like ends up on the tracks and like trips or like jumps down or something like that. So there's like this additional obstacle where they can't just immediately get to one another, <laughs> which I think is probably a smart choice on their part uh, yeah. over just like a flat, flat alley or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. It's a cool setting. Unfortunately, probably partially because the setting is a little bit, a uh, little bit complicated for them to like maneuver in. Just as John steps into Blast Bromley's hand restraints, Lady Ursula grabs both of them, and it's actually kind of funny because we get a nice little <laughs> shot of just like the big bear lady just uh-huh. holding these two like giant muscular men in her arms, like, just struggling, and she doesn't even children. <laughs> like, like petulant children, yeah. It doesn't even seem like she's like trying very hard to hold them, and she's like so joyfully like, gleeful oh, yeah. while she's doing it. It's great. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> she's great. She, I, I, I would love more Lady Ursula if they just like purely allow her to be like a muscle, like yeah. just be a muscle. Make her a little, for my taste, make her a little bit dumber than I think she's been so far, and I would be obsessed with her. I would yeah, be so fun. obsessed with her. She'd be so much fun. Yeah, she's a lot of fun. I could see I could see that being a kind of case where if the show went on for a little longer, I think that she probably would be flanderized a bit and probably would be a little <laughs> bit dumber because, you know, it's a nice little we, – we get such little, like, comedic relief in this show that, uh-huh. like, it's always such a nice little burst of light. Even though yeah. she's a villain, it's always a nice little, like, like oh, that's just so fun when she's around. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it also would balance things out a little bit because you have Sir Ram who's very obviously a bad guy on the side of the bad guys. You have Lady Vermin, who I think is maybe a bit more neutral, but enjoys being bad. So she's also sort of a bad guy on the bad side of things. You have Lord Tiger, who seems to be a good guy on the bad side of things. And I think Lady Ursula could be sort of like 
in the Lady Vermin spot on the other side of the aisle where she is like that. Um, I always forget the term for this, but she's just like a uh, uh, like a bad guy for a punch clock villain. Right. Yeah. yeah. Where she's not necessarily thinking about what she's doing. She's just on that side of things. um, And probably should there ever be serious infighting could end up on the side of Lord Tiger, I think, instead, which I think would be a good balance if you're going to end up with that dynamic to have two people leaning in one direction, two people leaning in the other. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be nice. But it's weird because at the beginning of this episode, she kind of talks like a bad guy, <laughs> which I was surprised to hear and didn't love. But yeah. uh, we'll yeah. see. We'll see how, how, how she's utilized moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. So nearby, a blast from Sir Ram's lightning mace type thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, he's got... I, think he, I think he busted it out in the earlier fight. But that fight, the reason I said it was too oh, long yeah. is because I think it detracts from this. I think this end goes by too fast. It does, yes. And it, it might not have had they not spent so much time fighting in the lab. Yeah, no, I totally agree. This, this whole thing kind of whizzes by in a way that feels kind of unsatisfying. Especially this exact next beat. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, so this lightning mace type thing, uh, he, he shoots at Spider-Man, misses, hits a train car, which reveals its contents, which was the Solaris One spacecraft, which was John's spacecraft that he uses, mm-hmm. which is a big reveal that it still exists and they've accidentally found it where it was hiding the whole time. Uh-huh. And also, you know, the fact that it's still intact also opens up a lot of questions for uh, mm-hmm. for why it's still intact and, and what the uh, high evolutionary and, and Wonder Gore people are, are, are going to do with it. So that's a big deal. But yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's a big deal that's kind of brushed off very quickly, unfortunately. Uh, literally quick. cut off. It is l- This moment is literally cut off by the commercial yep. break. This is the worst commercial break I've ever so seen bad. on anything ever that wasn't a mistake. It's so bad. It like does this quick, super quick fade out, like literally like before the sentence has been finished. I know. John is like, my ship cut. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. Ah, I don't so understand. Bad. I don't understand like how that, I mean, I, I, I know like time constraint type stuff happens. So they have to cut corners sometimes with like time, but there are so many places that they could have cut a, just a mm-hmm. shot out from any that of these fights. Fight. The lab weird fight. Weird that they did here. <laughs> yeah. So weird. Yeah, this is so I'm I'm I think we've seen enough episodes now to predict that one of the the traps the show is going to continue to fall into is spending too much time on something in the early on and then trying to conclude with a battle that ends up getting rushed because yeah. this is exactly what we saw in the um the the get episode the biomass the... goblin oh. one Oh yeah, that one. Because yeah. I fully expected the the Spider-Man jumping rubble thing to be like more of a focal point of that that climax, and then Goblin just like swoops in and brings him above above ground, and it's all over like immediately. And it sounds like you were going to bring up a different example. <laughs> I was gonna. Well, it's a little bit. Well, I think your 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 comparison is much better. I was gonna bring up the episode before this, the Deadly Choices episode. That one that one isn't so much that the ending is rushed, so much as they just kind of spend time on the wrong half of the episode. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's 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 still related though. Like a- at least cousins, if not you know yeah. siblings in the same problem. Yeah, it's I, I don't really understand how something like that really happens because, you know, you're writing and rewriting the, the scripts. I don't know. It's like they're writing for half an hour and not realizing they only have 22 minutes. I guess, you know? I guess so. But then it's sort of like <laughs> – but but the problem isn't really so much that is is the things that they cut 
don't yeah. seem to make sense. Like it always seems to be the opposite thing that they should have cut. Mm-hmm. And I'd never under really understand why they're cutting what they're cutting. Yeah, it's a weird, weird problem the show has. And I think I think if you're going to criticize the show, this is one of the the far more legitimate things to criticize it for. Uh, is absolutely. that it's pacing and editing is not good. No, yeah, they have a, a lot of a lot of issues with that that are not smoothed over. <laughs> and undercuts big moments like this, which is a big deal. Yeah. Is a big deal, and that that kind of adds another because that that really just puts another kind of piece on the board that I I wasn't really you know I figured it'll be one of those things like oh maybe in a finale or something they find it again and that'll be kind of like their easy getaway but the fact mm-hmm. that they're kind of seeding it this soon is like okay so are you going to do something more with that or is there more to this like that's always a piece that was sort of on the board but like far off to the side so yeah. bringing it back in bringing it back in and calling it out. I guess you could argue it's just like a reminder that it exists. So if they ever want to come back to it and use it as like a resolution or an out, they can without it being like, you know, contrived. But either way, the fact that they're referencing it is cool and it's a big deal. Yeah, I agree. So Lord Tiger instructs the knights to surrender with John and Bromley and Sir Ram commands X-51 to destroy the revolutionaries. Spider-Man, of course, is like kind of appeals to like all the burgeoning humanity he was seeing in X-51 and, you know, they bonded over X-51's existential crisis. <laughs> yep. So luckily this does like get through to him. X-51 is able to like override whatever like firewall or, or program. <laughs> override or the override, baby. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah. He overrides the override that they overrided over him. Uh, and, oh, wow. That's a lot of layers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but but yeah, he's able, he's basically able to get his humanity back, um, gain control of himself, and uh, instead fires on the knights, uh, which frees John and Bromley. Spider-Man's also able to, like, do his duty and destroy a bunch of the machine men. So they're able to, like, win this battle and the knights flee. And uh, the they, they realize, however, that, like, they're going to have to, like, escape. They won't be able to handle any reinforcements that comes, which means that they can't, like, you know, get an entire spacecraft out of a subway. I don't know how they would move it anyway. Um, yeah, this is weird <laughs> because Spider-Man is the one who's like, yeah, but John, your ship. And John's like, not now. <laughs> what do you, what would you, how would, yeah. Or does it have, can you just drive it? Like, I don't understand. Like, what were you going to do know. with it, man? I feel like it would have made sense in the, I mean, it's, I think it's more interesting that it happens in that direction, but it would have made way more sense if John was like, but my ship and everyone else was like, John, mm. not now. <laughs> I don't know though, because I feel like John is the one who is super into the human revolution thing now. Like That's I true. think that he really has no interest in going home at this point. That's true. There's also, if you want to put a tinfoil hat on, there's like, there's always this sense of like. There's something more going on here. So, like, depending on how tall you want to build your tinfoil hat, it's interesting that John is the one who's like, no, 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 no. We have other things to do. Yeah, I I think it (laughs) makes sense. Spider-Man's like, no, this is what we were, this is what we were, what we were here for. But you're right, John, John, yeah, John's not here for it at the moment. Yeah, and I I like, I I do like that kind of dynamic between Spider-Man and John, like, I like it more than just their general, like, butting heads over, like, philosophies. I like Mm -hmm. that, like, Peter came there for a specific purpose. I mean, I guess John technically came there for a purpose, but it was more a vague, like, let's figure out what's going on in this weird counter-Earth thing. Peter is like, I'm here to rescue you and go home. And I like that that sort of causes them to to butt heads in a weird way, even though they sort of have, like, mutual goals. It's like, where, where going home falls on... Peter's list priority list is very different than where it falls on John's. 
and he can't go home without John. So like they have to kind of reluctantly kind of be on each other's page about those things. It's almost like uh, it's almost like a story that you could tell with time travel, but it's doing it without time travel. There's this book by Octavia E. Butler that is like a time travel thing where the character there's two main characters and they keep sort of time traveling but like on different timelines so there's a point at which like one character ends up back in time where the other character is and the character who's been there for a long time is like kind of established now and has been there so long without the other one that they're like i kind of have a life here now yeah and she's like what the fuck are you talking about because she's only been gone for like three days or something and he's been there for like years it's yeah it, it has that same vibe where like spider-man's like no man I, I i'm here i'm here like let's do this and john's like uh kind of i've kind of got my anchor down right now yeah kind of working on something <laughs> yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of that on like later seasons of lost too um it's, oh yeah 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 but both Interesting. the island and time travel actually so like it's uh <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's it's such an interesting like sci-fi premise for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I like I like that dynamic a lot. It's cool. This show yeah. has a lot of really in- such interesting character dynamics. I know. In, in I know. They're tackling such interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, okay, Spider-Man is still very interested in the Solaris one. And and the more I think about it, you're right, the more it makes sense cuz he is the one who wants to leave. So, this is like exciting for him he does try to shoot a tracer on it but one of the machine men shoots it down (laughs) which is like kind of incredible (laughs) it's so funny it's it's definitely one of those moments where they're like well spider-man has tracers so shouldn't he put a tracer on it and they're like yeah but that'd be kind of easy so like we just have this like magic shot machine man guy (laughs) who's just like the best shot in the whole troop (laughs) he has put tracers on so many things and no one has ever noticed them moving things now (laughs) he shot them onto moving things and no one has noticed and this is a stationary thing and he can't get it on the stationary thing because this is the moment someone notices him doing it. In the middle of everyone like retreating and like <laughs> utter chaos in an enclosed space, this is the time where it's like, oop, nope, oop, sorry. Yeah. And then he doesn't try again either. So it's like, yeah. all right. <laughs> but it's fine. It's it's for plot reasons. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's totally fine. It's a it's like a pretty throwaway thing. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They know it exists anyway. <laughs> right, right, right. So... All that goes down, back above ground. I want to like this, but I don't really like it because this is part of the thing that I feel like one of the things that happens way too fast at the end of this episode, very Mm -hmm. quickly. John has, like, completely, like, turned a new leaf now and is, like, super, like, cheerful and, like, apologizes to Spider-Man. And Spider-Man's like, it's not me you should be apologizing to. It's X-51, which, oh, it's so sweet. I love it. I love him. Yeah. I love that. But, like... I don't understand why John is suddenly like totally cool. Like it's so I, I guess he's happy because he got Bromley back and they kind of won. So he's not like letting his like like aggroness like and fury overcome him. Mm. But he but like the fact that X51 was just like overridden and shooting at them and trying to right. kill them, like as much as I understand what was going on, I would I fully feel like John would have seen that as a reason that X51 cannot be trusted because to him it's like, well, then you could just be overridden at any time, right? So that's not right. great. Right, right, exactly. One of the things that this episode doesn't have as a theme that the Zeta episode does is this idea of like nature versus nurture and like genetics versus free will. And 
one of the reasons Terry doesn't trust Zeta is because he's like, he's a robot that is programmed. He can be reprogrammed. That's where John should fit. Like, yeah. John should be feeling that right now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's the type of thing he should be thinking about. Yeah. I agree. That happens way too fast. I, I'm fine with him apologizing to Spider-Man. I'm fine with Spider-Man being like, not me, man. But I think what should have happened is John should have been like a crusty bastard about it and been like, I'm not apologizing to a tin can. Yeah. And then Karen could have stepped in and been like, I'm the logical lady and I'm going to say we can use him as a revolutionary. Right. And John reluctantly agrees. And exactly. then they all like, work together. Yeah. Yeah. But it's I'm just keeping like, my eye on you. Right. It <laughs> Machine <made> more... man. <laughs> like they still could have had the same ending, but it would have made more sense. It's sort of like they weirdly tried to go really hard on a happy ending at the end of this that wasn't yeah. earned. And I don't really think you needed it because it still would have been kind of a happy ending anyway. But it's also still kind of a melancholy ending because mm-hmm. X51 still like is still kind of in the midst of his existential crisis and looking for his path and is going to be hunted for the rest of his existence probably. Yep. So like, it's not like a super happy ending. <laughs> right. And if, if John and Spider-Man are allowed to disagree over the course of six episodes, it's entirely believable that John and, and X-51 can walk away on different pages from this episode. Yeah. Like it, it, there's no reason for him to, to, to be gung-ho about X-51 suddenly. It's not like, this isn't a show that can handle it. Right. It's weird because I like that X-51 is joining the human revolution. I like that that implies that he's going to make more appearances and I want him to because I like him. Right. But it's like to end on John and X-51 having like a pleasant handshake, not with no reluctancy at all, just a very much like, I learned to trust a robot today, which it's like, okay, that would be cool. But that <laughs> I don't see how you did. Like that doesn't fit into right. you at all. He's very easily convinced that this is a person. Yeah, yeah. Which again, nice. Just does not fit into the character that we've been uh, we've been with yeah. for, for this show so far. Right. Yeah. So it's not like a bummer ending to end on. It's just kind of a weird no. one, and I think it's attributed to to the weird way that it's rushed. Because I still really like this one, and I like the idea of how mm-hmm. it goes. But I think it's pretty. I the reason I like it so much is pretty specifically uh, uh, surrounding X fifty one himself as a character, rather than like the episode that he's written into because the episode he's written into is just kind of eh. <laughs> like it's just okay but he yeah. is a great character yeah he's a great character and what he goes through is especially interesting i think and it's presented in a way that's that's done well his journey is done well the yeah. stuff around it isn't isn't amazing but it's not terrible either yeah yeah definitely definitely we have one face of the episode for this episode before we wrap up, and it is Peter getting burned by a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they like, didn't really mention this in the in the actual like uh, recapping of the episode. Yeah. So at the beginning, it's so good. <laughs> at the beginning of the episode, when when Peter and Shane are at the demolition site, um, like Shane's kind of referencing, like, "Oh yeah, this is where Spider-Man you know, saved my mom from from the symbiotes," and Peter's like, "Hey, I was there too." Um, and Shane's like, oh, yeah, you called the police. I mean, I guess you tried, Peter. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and Peter just, like, looks at him just like, okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. It's so good. It's so sweet. Because it's not, like, intentionally passive aggressive. It's, like, that type of, like, real talk that comes from kids just because they oh, have, yeah. like, no interest in, like, social, like, like tact and, like, social norms in that. It's yeah. just, like, no, 
that was uh, that was pretty lame, but all right, you tried. <laughs> yeah. Looks well, like a kid being like, it's okay if you're bad at this. And you're like, wait a second. Hold exactly. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing, this is totally unrelated to the specific face of this episode, but it's in this frame. And this is totally unimportant. Uh, so this isn't like a critique of the show or anything. It's just like something I noticed and it, it made me realize something I want that we're not going to get, but it's fine. His camera in this uh, show is like very obviously a counter earth camera. I think I don't remember if it's the same camera he's using on earth prime or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's, it's at least in the style of everything that would fit into counter earth. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's like cool and novel and whatever. And it fits in with the style of things. I really wish though, he had his camera from earth prime because it would appear to be sort of like behind their technology and would probably feel foreign to, the the people he's around which would make it sort of like a weird point of interest and kind of something he has to like explain to a degree Hmm. plus i think it would be like kind of interesting to have him need to develop film in like a a world that doesn't develop film (laughs) oh that's (laughs) necessarily i think that would be kind of cool it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't contribute anything to like the overall show so i i get why it wouldn't cross minds or be important at all but i think that would be such an interesting little little detail if, if if somebody included it to be like oh yeah peter still has some like old world stuff <laughs> yeah it's a, it, well yeah that, that's interesting it's just kind especially of because be... i don't know how he would afford a new camera right it's like one of those just kind of fun like world building things that they could only do on a show like this yeah yeah, yeah would have cool. been neat. <laughs> but it is a uh fun looking camera it kind of looks like a talk boy <laughs> it totally does yeah it totally does <laughs> Uh, well, if you want to listen to two talking boys, (laughs) (laughs) you can listen to these two talking boys even more. The best transition (laughs) that I ever heard on this show. Wow. Just two talking boys. Just two talking boys uh, on the main feed and on Patreon at patreon.com slash walloping web snappers, where there's a whole lot of extra content starting at just $1. If you support us with just $1, we love you and reward you back. Uh, For more information on that, go back like half an hour because we already talked about it. If you would like more from us individually, Derek. Where can people find you and the things you are working on? Sure thing. You can find me on Twitter at Derek B. Gale. You can also find me on YouTube under my video essay series, Second Chance, which looks at bad and or divisive media from a positive lens. How about you, Doug? You can find me on Twitter at Ikibuli, I-C-K-Y-B-O-O-L-E-Y, tweeting about things I'm watching and playing. And if you're into the world of Pokemon, you can find me on another show here on the 4-Eyed Radio Network called Victory Road, a Pokemon podcast where my co-host Kyle talk about Pokemon just sort of as we feel like it. If you would like more information just in general from Walloping Web Snappers, uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at at Walloping Web Pod. You can also email us at Walloping Web Snappers Podcast at, gmail, at gmail.com to complain about that segue. Please, re- <laughs> I cannot talk at the end of this. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Doing that helps other people find the show. If you're enjoying it, there's somebody out there who doesn't know that we exist yet who would also enjoy it, so we would love for you to do that. Next week, Spidey becomes the target of a deadly assassin that we may or may not be familiar with in 
Enter the Hunter. Bye. Um, yeah, so Lord, uh, Lord Tiger instructs the knights to surrender with, uh, John and Bromley. You a hundred percent already read that. What in the <laughs> world did I just, yeah, I was just reading that. I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Oh my We're God. We're at this very last paragraph. Thank God. Okay, cool. <laughs>